0: The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. Well, I've never heard that song, I'm Not Going to Hell. I've been thankful for that for a long time, but uh, never have heard that, so that's a neat song to learn. I appreciate that, and thank you, uh, Brother Huey, for the uh, good song. appreciate that, and uh, I'm going to show you how that fits right into what we're going to preach tonight, and then thank you, Brother Dave. I... Appreciate, uh, I appreciate, boy, I just love that style of singing. I, I love that style of singing. I, I appreciate that. And uh, His grace is sufficient for me. You let some hear that, and they'd say, that, that's an old song. Well, it's not that old. I mean, it was brand new when I started out in the ministry, so it couldn't be that long ago. I think it was about 1965 or somewhere right in there when that one came out, and um, I'd never you know sung in public except with my wife and uh, I, we, my wife and I sang together and I always said it's really you sing uh, together husband and wife and it's just so memorable it is and it's even more memorable if the first time you sang was also the last time you sang so it, uh, that's the way it was with us and uh, then I got thrown in a quartet when I started out in the ministry in 1967 And one of the first songs we sang was, His Grace is Sufficient for Me. So that was in 1967, and I can say today, uh, with greater authority than I could sing back then, His Grace is Sufficient. And I'm so thankful for that great song, great singing, appreciate it very much. We're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, tonight. Matthew, chapter 6. And where we are, Matthew 6, is the very heart of of the Sermon on the Mount. According to Matthew's record, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Oh, my, my. I love teaching, preaching, uh, memorizing, uh, teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And so we obviously don't have time to do it all. It's a, it'd be a long, long series to do the whole Sermon on the Mount. But we're going to look in verse number 19 of chapter number 6. And maybe not everyone recognizes or, you know, grasps right off, okay, so what's the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's where Jesus very early in his public ministry said to his disciples, they uh, were in a mountain and they sat and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, that's how chapter 5 begins. That's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Then he goes into the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn and blessed are the meek, and so on. And then uh, you have the rest of the teaching of Jesus through verse number 7 is the sermon on, uh, through chapter number 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, when I preached through the series uh, years ago at Southwest, what I called the series is this, In the Discipleship Class with Jesus. So that if you want to know what the Sermon on the Mount is about, for those of you that may not be so familiar, uh, what the Sermon on the Mount is about, it's Jesus saying to His disciples, if you're going to be my followers, here's what it's going to look like. This is exactly what it's going to look like right here. And so what He taught there is the way of a true follower of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you right now that the Sermon on the Mount is very demanding Jesus said in chapter number 5, He said, You have heard that it hath been said, and then He would give them what was commonly said by the Pharisees, by the Jews. You have heard that it hath been said. Now now watch this. But I say unto you, now I want to ask you a question. If Jesus said, You have heard what it it hath been said, but I say unto you, you think He's going to lower the standard? or raise the standard. He most definitely raises the standard. And uh, the reason that the Sermon on the Mount begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, because the poor in spirit is not somebody that's beat down and has slumped shoulders and her head hanging to the ground. The poor in the spirit is the person that recognizes his utter dependence upon God. And the reason that the Sermon on the Mount begins with blessed are the poor in spirit in my estimation, is because without, or or let me put it this way, in self-reliance, self-sufficiency, you will fall flat on your face trying to live the Sermon on the Mount. It's too high. The standard is too high. But there's a verse, isn't there? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And it's only through Christ that the Sermon on the Mount can be lived. Oh, mercy, I love the Sermon on the Mount. But I don't have time to do any more than that. Look at verse 19. Let's stand together and read. Beginning in verse number 19 of chapter number 6, right here in the middle, or what I call the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 19, Jesus said, Lay not talking to his disciples. Now, were there others in his hearing? Yes, yes. Did the Bible say He opened His mouth and taught them? They sat, He opened His mouth and taught them, the disciples. Yes, He called the disciples to them, and they sat down, and He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, He is discipling His disciples. This is not an evangelistic portion of Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount is not. It's Jesus teaching His disciples. Verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves, Treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now verse 22 and 23, pay particular attention. These verses are far more important to the passage that we're discussing tonight than they are usually given credit for. Look at verse 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. That's not a question. It's a statement if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Verse 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, to his disciples, those of that day and all would-be disciples. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Can I have your attention up here just a second? Just right quick, and we can save a little time a little bit later on. Uh, He'll say these words three times. Take no thought for your life. Take no thought. He'll say it three times in our passage. You know what it means? It doesn't mean be mindless, don't think, Jesus is not teaching his disciples, don't think. No, we, uh, we need to think. We are supposed to think. But basically what he is saying is, take no thought, have no anxiety over. Or let's see if we can think of another way to say it. Don't fret. Don't fret. Exactly. He didn't know he's helping me with the introduction to this <laughs> sermon tonight. Do not fret. That's the, that is the language of that Jesus is using here, I say unto you, take no thought, don't you fret about your life. In what way? Look in verse 25. What ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither did they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Second time he brings this up. Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, third time, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Let's pray. Father, we want to say thank you tonight for the privilege and the blessing that is ours to assemble in this place once again. We thank you for, again, the time to come together and to sing your praises. We do want to say thank you, Lord, for the ministry and song uh, that we have enjoyed and been blessed by tonight. Thank you for those that you have enabled to stand and to sing and to, and to reach our heartstrings, O God, by the ability to sing and by the message of the song. Thank you so much. We pray now you bless our time in the Word. May your Holy Spirit work. Make this a most profitable and meaningful and helpful time. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Thank you. May be seated. I got diagnosed in uh, the year 2009 with type 2 diabetes and and many of you know that uh, when you have uh, diabetes, whether it's childhood diabetes or type 2 diabetes, you know they get they're concerned about a number of things. But one of the things is your eyes and your eyesight and such as that. And so you're supposed to go regularly for a doctor's uh, to the doctor and get checked up and see if your eyes are deteriorating, what's going on. And so I was about oh I would say. 18 months behind on my appointment. Uh, they wanted you to go every six months, but I'd schedule every year. And I was about 18 months past, about a year and a half, maybe a little bit more past. And my wife kept nagging, uh, not nagging me, encouraging me that I should go see the doctor and get my eyes checked because she said, honey, you're misreading the scripture and it's not like you. You try to be careful about the reading of the Bible and uh, reading it to the, in, in the preaching and such as that. And she said, you just need to go get it done. I said, yeah, I'm I'm going to, I'm going to. And we were traveling and going in like a house of fire. And so I I didn't. But I was preaching in a revival in in, uh, Clovis, New Mexico. And it was the first time I'd been to that church. I knew the pastor very well. A couple of our graduates were uh, in the church as well. And so, but it was my first time there to the congregation. It was a Sunday morning. And it was a three-step platform. You step down this step, and uh, then the next step. So actually, uh, is that right? Anyway, three steps. So I'm standing there preaching. I'm in the middle of the sermon. The first time I'd preach there, people are looking at me like, where'd you come from? And I'm looking at them like, what about you, you know? And so we're trying to figure each other out. And I'm in the middle of the sermon. I'm coming to a place in the sermon, Pastor, you know what this is like, where you're at a real critical spot and uh, the auditorium was about this deep but maybe not quite this wide and uh, I'm standing on this platform and you could take a step down and then the next step is the floor and so as I'm preaching away I decide I'm going to go to the floor and get up real close and personal and look them right in the eyeball and make this dynamic incredibly powerful point that was my opinion of the point I was about to make and so I was going to make that point but what I didn't realize my eyes played a trick on me, and I'd actually stepped down on that, um, I, I was standing up here, and I thought I was on that first step, and then the floor, so I was going to step down to the main floor, which I did, <laughs> but I stumbled over that step that I did not see, and I mean I fell, my Bible fell over here, I fell just about, bumped my head on a pew right there. I mean, it was just it was just horrible. There hadn't been people sitting right here. I'd just crawled under the pew and gone out the band, back door, got in my car and headed back to Oklahoma, I really think. It was just terribly, terribly embarrassing. And so I never did. I was still trying to make the point. I never did stop. You can't shut up a Baptist preacher. You just keep it going. So I kept it going, picked up my Bible and hoping they wouldn't notice. And they're looking at me like, should this old man be out here trying to do this? You know, oh, it was terrible. So we get in the car, and what do you think my wife says? Think you ought to get them eyes checked or not? She didn't say it like that, but that's basically what she's asking me. Think you ought to get the eyes checked? Yeah. I went to Dr. Gary. His dad had been a deacon at uh, Southwest Baptist Church, wonderful people. And Gary didn't go to our church. Uh, He was my doctor, but he didn't go to our church, but he's a wonderful Christian man. And so we're doing the examination. I told him this story that I just told you. Well, he got a kick out of it, and he said, let me tell you what happens to people your age. He said, what happens is, through the process of time, there gets to be this film that comes over the eye, and, you know, growth and such as that, and uh, another eye physician said that it's also under the lens of the eye, but he said, what happens is, uh, you're able to see because of rays of light that come in, and he said, uh, according to what Jesus taught, there's the single eye and the evil eye. And he said, now physically that means that the single eye is clear, so that the uh, rays of light come in. And he said, imagine the rays of light as little tiny arrows, and they are these little bitty micro arrows, and they just come and come and come by the millions, and they come. And when they come to the lens of your eye, if it's a clear eye, if it's not an evil eye, if the lens is clear, they hit the lens of the eye, the lens takes it, to the retina, the retina takes it back to the optical nerve, the optical nerve takes it to the brain, and he said, then your brain is able to process, and so you say, I see. And he said, it all happens so fast, but that is exactly what happened, the rays of light come, no rays of light, no see, you know that. And as the rays of light come in, if the eye is single, they come in, the lens does its work, takes it to the retina, retina to the back of the eyeball, to the optical nerve, optical nerve to the brain, and you can process, and you shouldn't fall off of platforms, you should be able to navigate, you should be able to drive, you should be able to read, you should be able to do all kinds of things. But he said what happens is, when after so many years, this uh, something comes over the eye, he has technical terms and everything, but something comes over the eye, so that the rays of light keep coming, but they hit, and he said, imagine those sharp arrows coming in, they flatten, they eventually get through to the retina, but now they are messed up, and that's what causes the blurring And so he said what happens is they come and they finally get to the retina, they get to the, uh, take it back to the optical nerve, they take it to the brain and the optical nerve takes it to the brain but what gets to the brain is all muddled and fuzzy and that's why you can't read well and that's why you can't see well. He said that's what happens. Now the reason Jesus brought that up and he did bring it up, he's the one that brought it up, the light of the body is the eye. If your eye be single, your whole body is full of light. You should be able to function. You should be able to do what you are able to do because you can see. But if the eye is evil, then to some degree or another, it's very possible you're going to make a misstep or it's very possible you're going to suffer from malfocus, Not being able to focus right. It's very important we're able to focus right. But well, we know Jesus wasn't talking primarily about the physical eye. What Jesus is properly, uh, primarily talking about is that they might be focused on what His purposes are, what the purposes of His Father, what they are. That's what Jesus is primarily concerned about. Now, you know, many of you are like me. You've been in, many of you have been in church for a long, long time. You've seen a lot as well. Not just preachers see things, you've seen things. And you've seen people that were once plugged in in church and serving the Lord and living for God and doing the work of the Lord, and then all of a sudden you kind of look around and they're not there anymore. Did you know most people like that have a problem sort of like happens to the evil eye when you begin to lose focus and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse until you're making the kind of mistakes I made and falling off a platform, making a fool out of yourself right in front of everybody? All right, what happens to a lot of people in their spiritual life, they didn't wake up one day and say, You know what I think I'm going to do? Quit going to church. That's what I'm going to do. Very few does it happen that way. Very few. I don't know of any in all of my years of trying to be a preacher and a pastor and all of that for years. I don't know anybody that ever did that. What happens is it's kind of gradually, a little by little by little, and they're not seen clearly and they are malfocused and they are. Uh, Next thing you know, nothing what they used to be. And they're making missteps and justifying it. They're not where they should be. Now that can happen to a Christian. Isn't that right? That can happen to a church. I'm not trying to sound like an expert on anything. I'm just saying, but I've been in churches all across America. I could take you to city after city after city, and drive by buildings and properties and say, did you know at one time this right here at this location was a thriving, soul winning, Bible believing Baptist church where people got saved, where people got disciples, where people were called to the ministry, where people were called to be missionaries that sent churches, I'm, I'm sorry, missionaries and church planters out. And this church at one time was thriving, it was vibrant, it was on fire. And now it's either empty. Or maybe it's a Spanish ministry. Nothing wrong with Spanish ministries, but the church is not there anymore. Or if it is, it's not even recognizable as a Bible-believing, independent Baptist church. What happened? Somewhere the church lost focus. Let's not forget, the church is not an organization. I said, then a New Testament church is not an organization. It is an organism. It's a living body. Read Romans chapter uh, 12 and read 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. It is a body. It's to function as a body. And what happens is churches can lose focus. And what Jesus is dealing with is his disciples. Now listen to this. He is talking to his disciples and he is talking to them in the manner in which he is speaking to them. And he throws in what we know is verse 22 and 23 because... Even at this early stage of their fellowship, they are malfocused. They are, they're not seen clearly. Now, let's think about this for just a moment. This is very early in their ministry, it's very early in their fellowship of Jesus. I mean, if you go back to chapter number uh, uh, three of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter four of the Gospel of Matthew, You go back there in chapter number 3 is where the temptation takes place. Chapter number 4, he is launched out in his public ministry. And in chapter 4 is where he goes by the Sea of Galilee and he says to Peter and Andrew, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, James and John. He calls them to follow him and he's calling his disciples. Well, by the time we come to chapter 5, he's got his disciples uh, assembled and he is teaching them. So, no, I don't think anybody knows exactly how far into his public ministry that he is, but it can't be very long. I'd say a matter of weeks at the very most. And he is sitting down to his disciples, and he is saying, the light of the body is the eye. If your eye be single, your whole body is full of light. If your eye be evil, then your whole body is full of darkness. And if the only decisions you know how to make are with the darkness that is in you, how great is that darkness, you are not going to be focused in the right place. And then the chapter, I'm sorry, the Sermon on the Mount, moves on and tells how they are malfocused. If you look down with me please look down in verse number 25 he said therefore say I unto you take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink nor yet for your body what ye shall put on is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment then he repeats it again in verse 31 then tells them not to have fretting and anxiety again in chapter, in verse number 34 can I have your attention up here at this early stage what are they fretting about? What are they worried about? How is it that they are malfocused? Now, if Jesus said, "Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, or what ye shall put on," what do you think he's fretting? They're fretting about. What do you think that he sees in them that they are concerned about? What do you think it is? Well, I would say whatever he's addressing. What's he addressing? He is saying, don't you be fretful, don't you be stressed out, don't you give thought to or have anxiety for, you You can study this out yourself, you'll come to this overwhelming conclusion. He is telling them there is no need for you to be wringing your hands with worry and to have anxiety and to be fretting about these issues. Jesus said, you don't need to do that. Why would he tell them they shouldn't do that if they weren't doing that? As a matter of fact, back up from verse 25. Look in verse 24. Interesting this is. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. Uh, Jesus, can you tell you exactly what you mean by that? Yes. Look at the end of verse 24. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now what's mammon? Uh, You want a good... Definition of mammon, or a good illustration, I should say, of mammon Uh, food, drink, clothing, stuff, money. A lot of times people uh, are inclined to think about mammon as something evil. Mammon is not evil of itself. Forevermore, I'm wearing mammon. Aren't you glad? (laughs) You understand? I drove here in mammon, it's not my mammon. But it's brother frank's mammon he loaned me the car that's talking about material things i mean i'm a baptist preacher i got all kinds of money are you kidding me this is mammon right here and so things that have to do with the material world. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they need a right relationship, not only with God, and they're going to need a right relationship with man, but they need a right relationship with the material world, with the things of this world. And he said, men, you need to understand you're struggling right now and you're having a problem because you you don't understand yet that you cannot serve God and mammon. No man can. He said, no man can serve two masters. Excuse me, he did not say you shouldn't serve two masters. That's not what he said. He said you can't. You, no man can. No man. Well, you see, in my situation, sorry, he already covered you. No man. No man can. And you cannot serve God and mammon. He never said you shouldn't serve God and mammon. He said you cannot serve God and mammon. Very, very clear. Now, why would the disciples, think this out here just a second. Why would the disciples be worried about things like what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear? Why would they be worried about that? Well, let's not forget, the disciples were, um, they were men that had to make a living. Uh, probably from what we understand, seven of the disciples were from Galilee, and it's understood that probably all seven of those Galilee disciples made their living by fishing. And uh, so uh, if you read the Gospel of Luke in chapter number five, that the disciples brought their (laughs) ship or boat to shore and forsook all and followed him. Now do we know what that means? Yeah, they left their boat there. Well, then you just leave the boat there. They left their occupation there. Is everybody with me here? And when it says they forsook all and followed him, it means that James and John left Zebedee, their father, and Peter and Andrew left the uh, business that they had in the fishing industry, and that the other disciples that were fishermen, and we know that Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector, and Jesus came by the table in Matthew chapter 9, it tells the story how it happened, and he came by the table uh, where he was collecting taxes in Matthew chapter 9, and all the scripture says is, he said to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. He left it. He left the occupation of a publican or a tax collector and began to follow Jesus Christ. So, this would have been true of all the disciples. They forsook all and followed him, which means they left their occupation behind. Excuse me. Peter had a mother in law. Now, somebody tell me what that means. It means he had a wife. Nobody in their right mind would take the mother-in-law without the wife. Come on, you, you, it just doesn't work that way. So a man had a wife. And this needs to be preached across our country. If a man has a wife, he has a responsibility. If a man has a wife, he just might have children. And if a man has children, somebody said, you don't know that the disciples have children. Well, you don't know they didn't. Because Jesus continues on in chapter number 7. He said, if ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children how much more shall your heavenly Father give the things to you that you need? See, and so it's very possible that some of these not only had a wife, but had children. I'm not saying they're all married. I'm not saying we know. I'm just saying this is what he's telling them, and they have a responsibility, and now they are following Jesus Christ, which means what? They're not selling fish. If they're not selling fish, how are they going to meet those responsibilities? Because you don't read anywhere where it says every Friday they were paid, Nothing like that. There's nothing like that at all. No indication of that. So, I can just kind of hear a conversation. You ought to use your imagination. I mean, I don't want to take too much liberty, but there's space for some imagination here. If you imagine the disciples talking among themselves, if you read the Gospels, you know that there are more, there's more than one time that the disciples are talking about something, thinking maybe Jesus doesn't know what they're talking about. So he comes and addresses them about what they're talking about because they can't talk about anything he doesn't know what they're talking about. I have no idea what I just said, but I hope it made sense. Amen. I, I'm just saying, Jesus knew. And so I imagine the disciples, maybe Jesus was talking to somebody over here. Maybe he was in prayer or meditation or maybe resting. The disciples are together. Maybe one of the disciples said something like this. Man, can you believe from where we are to where we are now? This is, this is unquestionably the Messiah. This is the Son of God. A little later, Jesus would say, who do men say that I am? Come on, you know Matthew 16. And and he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they recognized, can you believe where we used to be and where we are now following this holy one, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners? Does everybody listen to this? He knew no sin, perfect in every way, his words were amazing. His works were mir- miraculous. Can you believe we're with him? And I, one of the disciples must have spoke up. Maybe Thomas, I don't know. One of the disciples must have spoke up and said, yeah, I mean, sure, it's amazing. But I tell you, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm getting a little worried about about." Well, I mean, I've got a responsibility. I, I don't know what we're going to eat. I mean, we don't see any income being taken in. I mean, eventually, we're uh, what? I mean, it's okay now. We haven't starved. We haven't missed anything, I guess, right now. But uh, eventually, we're gonna, how are we going to take care of things? What are we going to eat? What we, it costs money to eat. What are we going to drink? Water was not accessible to them like it was now. It was a big issue. What are they going to drink? And 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 what are we going to wear? These clothes are going to eventually wear out. Now, come on, just a second. It got to the point where they were having anxiety over it. Why? How do you know they were having anxiety? Because he said, "Take no thought." Saying he said it twice. Take no thought. Saying, "What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear?" So I, I I I'm not. I don't think I'm reading one thing into this. You have to get the picture in your mind that the disciples were reaching a point of stress. They were reaching a point of fretfulness. They were reaching a point of anxiety. They were giving thought to this, having anxiety and having worry. That's what the phrase means. And they are having this worry. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? I mean, uh, it, we, when they signed up, they didn't sign a contract, say, we'll follow you for three years. They had no idea what to expect. They had no idea. At this point, they had no idea he would die at the end of three years or thereabouts. They didn't, they had no idea. They had no idea how long they would have to leave their occupation, they didn't have any clue. And they got to thinking, you know, just looking how things are, okay, we're fine now, but six months from now, a year from now, what are we going to eat, how am I going to take care of my wife, how are we going to take care of children if they had children, how are we going to, I mean, how's this all going to work out, we don't understand this, what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, to the point they were wringing their hands about it. And I can see this huddle of disciples, and next thing you know is sounding like the Jews of the wilderness, and they're murmuring, and maybe with a tone that is, what are we going to, sure, it's great, I mean, he's amazing. perfect, He's holy, He's righteous. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? you are over here focusing on that. Let's call this, uh, the disciples were focused on the low level issues of life. Now if I'm acting like I don't want to eat, I'm totally misrepresenting me. I want to eat. Preach and eat. That's my favorite thing in that order. Preach and eat. So, yeah, I want to eat, but, but it's, it's a, it, well, how should we say this? It's common to everyone. After all these things, what did he say? After all these things do the Gentiles seek. Come on, don't make me go back and read it. It's right down there in that little parenthesis. He is saying, what you guys are focusing on After all these things do the Gentiles, people that aren't my followers, people that don't know me, people that are not a part of the covenant of promise, people that don't know God. This is what the normal world thinks about. What are you going to drink? After all these things, clothing, drink. That is the way of the world. I travel a lot and I have done a lot of flying over the years and I've listened to people talk. Generally, they're going home when I'm going out. I'm going out on Friday or Saturday, and I'm on an airplane, I'm listening to talk, and they're going back home, and they're planning their weekend. I've heard coworkers and others talk about what they're going to do this weekend. You know what they're going to do? Got their favorite place. They're going to go out to eat. Then they're going to go drink. How many of them? I'm not saying every one of them, but I'm just saying. They talk about their drinking holes. And I remember one guy saying, "I know what I'm going to do through Friday night, but by the end of Friday night, I'll be so drunk I won't remember the rest of the weekend when I start up on Monday." Everybody laughed about it and just thought it was a great deal. guys.' There been three or four guys talking here. Yeah, great. Yeah, this is what they talk about. Go go shopping, go shopping. Is this a shop happy society or what? Amen, brother Sam. There may be some that don't admit it. It is. This is a shop happy society. Go out and eat, go drink, go shopping. Shopping. I'm I'm, I'm just telling you right now that over the years, my wife is a very frugal person, very, very conservative, very, very frugal, and she's kind of adopted the philosophy that if there's a big sale, you can't afford not to save the money. I don't know any women. I'm sure there are some, but I don't know any ladies that don't like to go shopping. And I don't mind it if the mood hits me just right. It's got to hit me just right or I'm in and out of there. But look at our, look at the, I mean, even through recessions and everything else, look at the retail industry in this country. And now it's not less because of the internet. It's probably more because of the internet. Because I found out that some of the people that even, you know, I thought when I started ordering on the, uh, on the internet, I wouldn't even want to go shopping. I miss shopping. I go shopping too. So they go shopping and then they shop on their phone or on their device and they shop and shop and shop. Okay, so that's the way the world, that's the way it is in this world. And so the disciples over here saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And what they're interested in is what everybody else out there is focused on. Excuse me just a second. Do you think Jesus said follow me so they could focus on everything that the world was already focusing on? Don't you know that if Jesus said, watch this please, follow me, don't you know that he meant to call them to, what shall we say, high level issues instead of low level issues? Yes or no? What are you going to make me preach? You can either agree and nod your head or act like you're out there or we can stay here for a while. What do you think that he means for them to focus on? The low level issues of life is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment. After all these things to the Gentiles seek, what's he doing? He's trying to bring them from their concern over the low level issues of life and get them to think about the high level purposes of his father. That's what he's doing. So he's got to get his, their eyes from there to here. to the This is, I think, a right way to describe it. To the high-level purposes of the Father, which would be what? Well, do we know how, um, stay with me here just a second. Do we know how God used the apostles? Well, yes, we do. Uh, read the book of Acts. You're preaching through Acts right now. Follow through the book of Acts. The work that, excuse me, the work that is, mm, the work of the apostles in the book of Acts was the most significant work taking place on planet earth. By God's economy. They didn't think so in Rome. The leadership of Israel hated these apostles. You know what they tried to do to them. You've already covered some of that. And so, hold on just a second. But what Jesus had given his apostles to do was the most significant work going on on planet earth. I know how this would sound outside these walls, but it is still true that the propagation of the gospel is the most important work taking place on planet earth. More important than what's going on in Senate and House hearings right now about the approval of some um, appointees. More important than anything they're discussing in the Pentagon. Oh, now they're... Oh, Brother Sam, apparently you've never been in the military. You don't know the high-level stuff that's taken here. No, I I don't know everything about it. I'm not a military expert or anything. And I sure want the right things to be considered in the Pentagon. I pray for our leaders. I pray for our military. All of this, I didn't say it had no meaning. I'm just talking about what really matters from the standpoint of God. And we're not talking about being citizens of this world, being citizens of the United States. We're talking about being followers of Jesus. And if we're true followers of Jesus, then we understand that the most significant thing that is taking place is the propagation of the gospel here and everywhere. And as a matter of fact, here's how high level the work of the apostles was, they didn't get this yet, but they got it later, that the work of the apostles, read the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and you'll see that the teaching, oh, the teaching of the apostles of and about Jesus Christ, they were laying the foundation upon which we still build today. Amen. Yeah. I heard one amen and one yeah. I'm sorry, we're going to have to have a little more assent to that before I can move on that the work that the disciples did, the work that the apostles did, it, it, they laid the doctrinal, read Ephesians 2, it'll tell you this, they laid the doctrinal foundation, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, they laid the doctrinal foundation upon which we still build today. Do you know how we know we know the truth? Because we're teaching what they taught. Amen. You know why you stand up with confidence and preach the word of God and say this is so? you know why we're not standing up in a pulpit and putting our finger to the wind and say, which way are the religious winds blowing now? What should we teach now? What should we believe now? We're not doing that. We're looking in the Bible and we're still saying, thus saith the Lord. And we're doing this and teaching of and about Jesus Christ according to what the apostles gave us and what they gave us is the high level purposes of God else we'd be joining everybody else teaching error, falsehoods, and lies. And Jesus... Looks at these men, excuse me, that would lay this very foundation upon which we still build, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And they were at this point, right now, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And Jesus said, I've got to bring them from here to there. Yeah, that's what he's going to do. How's he going to do it? So how is he going to bring them from here to there? Thinking about the high level purposes. Well, he's going to talk to them about birds, of course. <laughs> birds? Yeah, don't look at me weird. I didn't bring it up. He brought it up. He said, consider the fowls of the air. The fowls of the air. If need, excuse me a second. While they're over here sinning well they're over here saying what are we going to eat I mean what are we going to drink? what are we going to wear how this is how's this going to work out and it must have been something that was growing and building and Jesus saw how significant it was and he addressed it here and if they'd have just looked up you know what they'd have seen birds flying through the air <laughs> what about the birds? well Jesus said they don't so they don't reap they don't gather in a harvest your heavenly father feedeth them are ye not better than birds If you go to the tree huggers in our country and say, are we not better than birds? They would say, we're not sure. We need to talk about this. (laughs) You and I know Jesus didn't die for birds. Somebody say amen. He didn't die for the animal kingdom in spite of the pet crazed society in which we live. And this is just a member of my family. This is Ruffo. He's a member of my family. And this is my favorite cat. And they're just a member of my family. I can't hardly stand that kind of stuff. The value of an animal, sure. I mean, I like animals. I had a cow dog and a good watchdog and everything. Back when I was a kid on the farm, had cattle and showed sheep and pigs and had chickens. I love to eat chickens, but I hate chickens themselves. But I love to eat chickens and what they produce. All of that kind of thing. I'm not minimizing the significance of animals. Jesus did not come to save animals. He came to save you. He came to save sinners. And he said, you're over here worrying while your father feeds birds? You're not not sure you can trust your father to take care of you, to move over to the high level purposes and do his will? You can't make that move yet because you don't know if he's trustworthy to take care of you? He feeds birds. <laughs> Amazing. I read a deal. Uh, oh, I wish I still had it. I had it for a long time. I loaned it to a preacher who said, I'll, I'll give it right back to you, Brother Sam. Well, then he gave, I gave it to another guy. If you'll call him, I think he has it. Well, oh, he didn't know where it was, so I've lost the documentation. But I read. And I read about, while Sam Walton was still alive, about a guy in Pennsylvania This guy was into numbers. I I forget what his livelihood was, accounting or something like that. But he was into numbers. He was also a member of the Audubon Society, and he was a Christian. So he had read this passage. At the same, sort of like a perfect storm came together. At the same time he read this passage, he was thinking about some of his Audubon or bird-watching activities. And then he read an article in the paper. And what he read was the incredible wealth of Sam Walton while he was still alive. The incredible, becoming one of the richest men in the world uh, while while he was still alive. And this idea came to his mind. Um, Let's see, and he got his team together, and they did a scientific research to find out the bird population of the world. Now, if somebody said to me, Go find the bird population of the world. If somebody hadn't already posted it, I'm supposed to figure this out? I'm going to go jump off a building somewhere. How do you figure out the bird population of the world? But they found out a scientific means to do it where they came up with a credible estimation of the bird population of the world. The second phase of their project was, let's try to figure out how much money it would take to buy bird food (coughs) to feed the birds of this world for one day. And they came to this startling realization that if all the assets of Sam Walton should be liquidated to buy bird food, his wealth could not feed the birds of the world one day. And our Father feeds them every day. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? (laughs) See how ridiculous this is? What are we going to do? No, when somebody says, Yeah, we got to keep beating up on those disciples. Amen. No, this has to do with you and me, too. There are people that won't take that next step of faith because they're just not sure God, well, I don't want to say it, but is dependable. I just don't know how He would take care of it. Why don't you just go ahead and say what you're thinking? I don't know if I can trust Him. He feeds birds. Excuse me just a second. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. He's your father. Do we know what that means? Jesus told the disciples 12 times in chapter 6. He told them 12 times. Men, my father is your father. You read it yourself. Count them. Matthew chapter 6. There are 12 times that Jesus assures the disciples, you don't have a thing in this world to worry about because my father is your father. Amen. I sit down with my brothers. I have a sister that passed on uh, about 10 years ago of cancer. My mother died in 2013. My dad had died back in 1983. He's only 70 years old. And so we're gathering to settle mom's estate My oldest brother, he's 10 years older than me, and so he was taking care of things, and both of our, I mean, both of our parents passed away, and I'm just happy to be a part of a family where we never had one second of tension or strife or anything. And my brother sat down and he divided mom's estate and divided amongst five. The six had already gone to heaven, and it was a blessing, but not necessarily a difference maker in our lives. But it was a blessing and uh so figured it up we're sitting there talking and my two remaining sisters are sitting over here talking my brothers and i are at the table here we're talking i said to my brothers they're eight and ten years older than me and i knew they had seen some hard times i'd seen some hard times uh my dad a sharecropper in some years that there wasn't much of a crop and cattle prices would go down or a fire or a hailstorm. We had a wheat field catch on fire that took a big chunk. And then we had uh, hailstorms come. You know, just all kinds. And insurance and government programs weren't in the 1950s like they are now. And uh, so I, I remember some difficult times. I remember instead of getting three or four pair of jeans to start school, I get one pair, you know. My mother would say, now, Sammy, when you go to school, please don't call me Sammy now, but that's what she did then. And uh, Sammy, when you go to school, don't go out and play football on that playground. you tear those jeans. These got to last you to Christmas. So I didn't for two or three days. And then, you know, how it goes. And so uh, my peer pressure got me in. It wasn't my fault, peer pressure. Got me into football and tear my jeans. You know, all that kind of stuff. I remember hard times, but my brothers knew more. And I said, uh, you know, when you was a kid, um, you know, before I was even born, and my uh, sister right before me and after me before we were born, I know that there were some really, really hard times. And did you ever lay awake at night and worry if you're going to have food? Because there were times they ate potatoes every night, and that's all they had, or beans, and that's all they had. And and uh, did you ever lay awake and worry, are we going to have food? Or are we going to have clothes to wear to school? Dad never owned a house until I went off to Bible college. I was the last kid at home. And, And did you ever worry that you might not have a roof over your head? Did you ever worry about that? And my brothers looked at me with the same look they used to look at me with when they said I asked the dumbest questions of anybody they'd ever heard. They gave me that look again in 2013. And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? And my brothers both answered, well, no, we never worried about that. I said, why didn't you? Well, Sam, come on. You knew we knew Dad was going to take care of things. There's no way he's going to leave us and not have food and not have a roof over our head, not have clothes for school. Daddy'll do whatever he needed to do. We well, that's why we didn't worry. And my younger brother, eight years older than me, looked at me and said, Did you worry? Like he's mad at me almost, you know. Did you worry? And I said, Never. Never. For the same reason. I never worried about that. I trust my dad. And you know who my dad was? Well, no, you don't. If I called his name, you wouldn't know. And you know one thing I knew about my dad? He got saved when he was 28. He said, On the verge of becoming an alcoholic and about to lose my mom and the siblings, older ones. And mom said, you either go to a revival with me out here in Cheyenne Valley, out in the country, this country Methodist church where a preacher was preaching, you either go to that revival with me or you're going to come home and you won't have a family. And my dad went. And the second night he went. After the second night he came home, fell on his knees beside the bed and called upon Jesus to be his Savior, forgive him of his sin. Consequently, I was raised in a home where my dad read us the Bible. Never heard my dad say a cuss word. I mean, a farmer, you know, go through a lot of things. Bust your knuckles and have blowouts, and then you got a dumb kid that tears up machinery and all kinds of stuff, and I never heard him say a swear word. Never, ever. Yeah. I'm so thankful for that. But I trust, but my dad was a sinner. I don't mean to make him out a perfect man. He's far from it. He was a sinner. I watched him go through a time in his life when he was bitter, church problems and everything, and he was angry and he was bitter. He was going to be done with it. God intervened. I don't have time to tell the story, but I'm just saying, my dad was a sinner, needed the grace of God just like you do, just like I do. And yet I trusted my father to take care of me. That's why Jesus said, how much more shall your heavenly father give you the things that you ask for and the things that you have need of. He feeds forevermore people. He feeds birds. You're going to, oh, look, look at me, you're going to take a step of faith and obey God and he'll feed a bird and let you down? What kind of a father do you think we have? That's not the father he revealed himself to be in his word, now is it? No. Then why do we hesitate? when he says, take the next step. Why does he, why do we hesitate when he says, follow me in this, follow me. Here's what I want you to do now. Here's what I want you to put out of your life. Here's what I want you to put into your life. Here's how I want you to serve me. Now I want you to teach. Now I want you to use the gifts that I've given you and use it for the furtherance of the gospel. Now I want you to give this amount or that amount. Lay not up for yourself treasures on earth. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. But, 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 no, you can't serve God in mammon. Give it to him. Let him control it. Take the next step. If the father feeds birds, he's sure going to take care of his children that pay attention to the high-level purposes of His Father and our Father. What are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? What are you going to wear? Jesus said, well, if the bird thing didn't get you, try the lilies. The Hula lily of Palestine. They said a rare, magnificent beauty. Jesus said it's more beautiful than Solomon in all of his glory. Don't have time to develop that, but I'm just saying more beautiful. They say about the hula lily that the closer you get, the more beautiful it is. You put it under magnification, and the, the beauty of it and the colors explode to a whole new level. That's the hula lily. You know how long their beauty lasts? Two days. Two days. You know what Jesus said? Your father clothed them for two days of beauty. Then what happens? Well, the workers would come and they'd gather up the declining hula lily, put it in backpacks and on carts and donkey backs, take it into the village, into the towns, and they would sell it to bakers. Bakers would put that declined hula lily into the oven. It created intense but not sustained heat. It was perfect for one of their favorite baked goods. And the (laughs) And the bakers would buy it and make these goods and that hula lily that people would stand in awe of and say, look at the beauty and be amazed of it every year for two days. Next thing you know, it's a pile of ashes out here. Jesus said, your father clothed that hula lily for two days of beauty. And then it's cast into the oven and it's a pile of ashes. You think he won't clothe you? When you give yourself to do his purpose, that's what he's teaching them. Hold on just a second, what's he doing? Getting their focus off of here and getting their focus over here to the high levels of the Father's will. God knows his children need to hear this over and over and over. God knows that Sam Davison has need to hear this over and over and over. Why? Because there's something about our fallen nature and there's something about the attractions of mammon and the things of this world that make us think it's far more important than it really is. And that's why we have to go back and visit the Word of God and let him clear our spiritual vision so that we're living up here, not down here. Jesus closed it out. It's really simple. I have no I have I have very little sympathy. I just can't understand what Jesus, I don't know what he was saying. (laughs) I think sometimes people do, and they don't really like what he's saying. So he said, now here's what you do. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God, Paul said, is not meat and drink. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but peace and righteousness and joy. So, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, how, can, how else can we say that? Let me think real hard. Put God first. Is that over anybody's head? Course not. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. <laughs> what about all these things? All these things shall be added unto you. Something I've wondered, Pastor. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things. Who said that? Jesus. If I stood up here tonight and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I want to announce tonight that I have done serious study and I do not believe that John 3.16 is valid. What do you think would happen? Well, if the pastor is who I think he is, he would say, well, why don't you go back to Oklahoma and we'll be fine without you and he'd send me on my way. That's what he ought to do. Why would he do that? Because he denied the clear teaching of Jesus Christ, who also said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Nobody believes that you should be able to deny John 3.16 and remain in standing of an authentic New Testament Baptist church, but you can deny Matthew 6.33 and everything will still be fine. And you tell me the sense that makes. Why would, look at me a second. Why would somebody trust the destiny of their eternal soul to the words of Jesus? But when it comes to this, or our life's abilities and gifts that he's given us to serve him, we can't trust him with it? Wait a minute. You hang the destiny of your soul on what Jesus said. And it's not like we can't understand what he said here in Matthew 6, As a matter of fact, we do understand. Then why don't you take that next step? Then why don't you make yourself available and say, Lord, you show me what part you want me to do next in the work of your gospel and in the work of your kingdom. I'll take that step because you're a father that feeds birds and clothes lilies. You're sure going to give attention to your children who obey you. Lord, once again, I go through all of this. It means so much in my own heart and life. I I cannot weary of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And we come together, it's a Tuesday night, of course. Many people, even in some churches, would say, (laughs) who would go to church on Tuesday night? Why would you do that? Obviously, not everyone does. So I'm with those that have assembled here tonight. But even at that, I don't know who is where in their spiritual life. I'm not around this assembly enough to know who is focused upon the high-level purposes and who struggles mightily to raise the level from the mammon and the things of this world and low-level thinking, I wouldn't know, but you sure do. And the most devoted saint, the most devoted believer in this room will admit, I have to go for a focus checkup regularly. Not to somebody like Dr. Gary, but to the Bible, to Jesus, Because if my eye is single, I'll see clearly and make the right steps. But if my eye is evil, I'll make wrong choices. It can cause a lot of damage and waste a lot of time. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. And there would be men and women and people in this assembly that would say, I need to refocus. I need to let go of some of the low-level issues of life that are creating anxiety in people everywhere, saved or not saved. I need for my focus and my main concern to be on the high-level purposes of my Father in following Jesus Christ. So might you bless this invitation. Your people have hearts of humility to say, oh God, clear my vision. Oh oh God, take away, take away the scales, take away the fog, take away the fuzziness that hinders me from seeing clearly, oh God, I want to focus on what matters to you, the high level purposes of God. I want to be I want to be not in name. I want to truly follow Jesus. If there's somebody here that doesn't know you in salvation, oh, that they would humble their heart. Let us take the Bible and show them how they can know they have eternal life, how they're able to call you Father and be called your child. Bless this invitation for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? We're going to have a time of invitation if the Spirit of God's spoken to your heart at all and you know there are things I need to deal with. I can be malfocused as well as those disciples were. Excuse me, if those disciples in the early weeks of following Jesus and the very presence of God made manifest in the flesh, if they can lose focus, so can you. So can I. No, I don't want to wander through life and then make missteps here and make missteps there and kind of laugh it off and say, well, nobody's perfect. No, I want to see clearly. And I know what's standing between me and a clear vision. It's my devotion to something of the mammon of this world, the low-level issues of life. I'm hung up on a career. I'm hung up on money. I'm hung up on investment. I'm hung up on the political scene. I'm hung up on this or that or another thing. It's just hard for me to have time to give attention to the things of God. Oh Lord, I just pray God would help us to see clearly. He'll help you. Oh yes, He will. What do you do? Same thing we do whenever we mess up. We come and say, God, here's where I am. Way too focused on material, mammon, things of this life and the things of this world way too little focus. i got more time to listen to news than I do to read the Bible. I spend more time in conversing about sports and politics or whatever the case might be and very little time talking to anybody about eternal things, spiritual things, Bible things, Is everything where it ought to be? I don't have to go down there in order to get right. Not unless the Spirit of God's prompting you to separate yourself and humble yourself and talk to Him. I've never said people can't get right with God standing where they are. I've never said that. But I'm worried about people that it's sort of like an issue. I'm not doing that. Ever feel a need at church? Say, oh God, I need to bow in your presence and talk to you. Precious lady. Precious lady, Norma, Norma Smith. When she went to heaven, I'd known her for over 50 years. Norma said to me one day, Brother Sam, doesn't it bother you when you see people going to the altar every service? Some of the same people going to the altar every service. Doesn't that bother you? And I put my arm around her. She'd have been like a, like a, an aunt to me, I said, "No, Norma. What bothers me is some that never feel a need to use an invitation by humbling himself to respond to God. Never, never. Seek you first the kingdom of God. His righteousness. This this sermon begins by this. Blessed are the poor in spirit." if we're too prideful <laughs> to humble ourselves before God, we're going too far into the Sermon on the Mount and left you behind somewhere. Oh God, you know. We commend it to you and ask you by your Holy Ghost to accomplish your purpose. In Jesus' name, Pastor. Pastor. Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.